Happy New Year, listeners. I'm Stephen from Maryland, who has just spent weeks dropping a giant cross off a castle rampart without once getting it to land the right way up. And I'm Al from New Zealand, who has probably passed Barbara Ewing in the street, but knows better than to stop her to ask about red-haired wigs, padded bras, and awkward photo shoots. We are Hammerama, the podcast about hammer horror, which always keeps its perspective morally outraged that someone stole that poor altar boy's bike in the opening scene. Watch closely. But happily cheering on a vampire's rampage through an innocent and unsuspecting town. Our opening track is the theme from The Wonderful House of the Gorgon by the equally wonderful Reba Clark. And our Hammer classic this month is A Grave Matter. So all rise as we disinter, Dracula has risen from the grave. No coffin could ever hold him. No door could ever bar his way. He is back from the dead. Count Dracula is alive. has risen from the grave. Dracula, the most fearsome name in any language. The most feared being ever to haunt the living. There is a girl. Maria. Bring her to me. During the hours of darkness, she must never be left alone. Bring her to me. (laughs) Christopher Lee. Rupert Davis, Veronica Carlson, Hammer's new star discovery, Dracula's most beautiful victim. Dracula has risen from the grave. To resist him is useless. To rise against him is futile. To know him is eternal damnation. Dracula has risen from the grave. Trying to get home after a long delay caused by icy conditions, Count Dracula Christopher Lee, is outraged to find that a church representative has left some unsolicited religious material on his doorstep while he was out. Who has done this thing? Dracula swears revenge for now having to reorganise his accommodation arrangements and sets his vengeful, red-rimmed glare upon the Monsignor responsible, Rupert Davies, and his niece, Veronica Carlson. Reduced to squatting in the cellar of a student pub, the Count makes the best of things by snacking on the barmaid, Zena, Barbara Ewing, the first of two New Zealand actresses to play a character called Zena. He also gets his timorous pet priest, 
Ewan Hooper, to rough up the Monsignor while he gets about seducing the lovely Maria. Fending off an unprovoked and ineffectual assault attempt by her jealous boyfriend, student and bakery assistant Paul, Barry Andrews, the Count takes the willing Maria back to his bachelor pad. But the bumbling second-class pastry cook and the cowardly clergyman are hot on their heels, determined to ruin the couple's night out. Will they succeed in countering the Count? Will our title character instead bring new meaning to the phrase bloody student? Or will he just end up feeling cross? Oh. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, that was... Oh, well. <laughs> you went there. <laughs> I did. I did. Sorry. This is the first time I've ever seen this movie. I thought I had seen it before. And my first thoughts are, it, it was interesting. And I, I also noticed... The, the boy riding the bike, and then, the, of course, when the, the priest shows up, the bike is gone. <laughs> and my first thing was the chickens had moved from one side to the other. I think the chickens did it. <laughs> first ones I fall to suspects. But I will say I, I enjoyed the movie, but there were continuity issues, that being one of them, mm -hmm. uh, that, that stand out. The other one for me that really sticks out is the priest when he gets the blood on the forehead and then – Suddenly it's gone and then it's back again. Okay, you know, there's so there were some continuity lapses. Mm, eagle eyed Steve. I don't know if I'm eagle eyed, but, <laughs> but I do say Veronica Carlson and Barbara Ewing definitely keeps people's eyes on the screen. Mm. You know, you don't have to be eagle eyed to watch them, and they both do their roles very well. Yes. I enjoyed both. I enjoyed uh, Christopher Lee, of course, as Dracula, mm -hmm. and I enjoyed Rupert Davies, but then, like, I thought he was going to be a bigger role in the movie the way it started off. Mm hmm. And then he kind of got sidelined for a while because he wasn't at the end. Biggest issue I think I, I have with the film is, unlike Peter Cushing's Von Helsing, Father Shandor, we don't have this big character-driven protagonist. And I think that's the void that's missing for me in this film compared to those other two Dracula films that we've seen so far. And I thought at first the Monsignor was going to take that role, but then it didn't happen the way I thought it was. Well, I've got some thoughts about that, Steve, because as I've said before, visually, I think this film is absolutely gorgeous, apart from its continuity errors. We know that it was directed by future Oscar-winning cinematographer Freddie Francis, and I think it might have been his first directing role, so maybe that might explain some of the continuity issues. But the filters that he uses really add atmosphere and menace. In every scene that the Count appears, the way that the, the picture just fades away into nothingness at the edges, it gives that wonderful, magical, dark, fairy tale sort of aspect, which I've always loved about Hammer films. And I really, really love the matte paintings. I'm a real sucker for matte paintings, particularly the rooftops of Kynenberg. As I say, they just give this gothic fairy tale feel, which I really love. It's almost like Mary Poppins meets Dracula, just all those scenes on the rooftops. But I especially love how this film presents Dracula himself in a way that's quite different to the way that Terence Fisher did it. Because in my view, in this film, he's presented in a slightly more modern way because he's not just the hero. In some scenes, he actually looks like a superhero, crashing through Maria's glass door and vaulting her balcony in one smooth motion. 
And there was that scene where he's standing on the rooftops, drawing Maria towards him. His cloak is literally just blowing out behind him. I mean, that is a real hero shot. I also loved how he used the cloak to shield himself from Paul's shovel full of hot coals. And then, you know, when Paul throws the second shovel at where he thought Dracula was, he's long since gone. It's a little bit of a Batman sort of scene, which I really enjoy. And speaking of Batman... In uh, 2017, legendary Batman artist Neil Adams, who sadly passed away last year, gave an interview where he said, I also would give credit to Christopher Lee for Batman. In this movie, Christopher Lee was Dracula. He was standing on a parapet and he turns to walk off. But I noticed he didn't just turn. He made a little quick turn to the right and then he turned to the left and walked off. And by turning to the right, he caused the cape to begin to flow outward. And the cape followed him as he walked off. He made the turn to the right to get the cape moving, because if he had just turned to the left, he would have walked into his own cape. And I realized that Batman has to rehearse his cape. He can't just wear the cape. And I got that from Christopher Lee. So when I started drawing Batman, I always had to rehearse the cape. So that actually gives you a little bit of insight into just how much work Christopher Lee is doing that he never gets credit for, but it takes a legendary comic artist to actually notice. Neil Adams' work is just breathtaking. For those that have never seen his work, you know, look it up. You could, you'll just be blown away with stuff that he was doing for decades mm. upon decades. Okay, my favorite scene, and I really hope I'm not stealing yours, Steve. The Count removes his stake. Now this seems to drive a section of fandom crazy, and apparently Christopher Lee wasn't too keen on it either. But the truth is that Hammer's rules for vampirism have never been consistent. As early as Baron Meinster becoming a bat in Brides of Dracula, after Van Helsing had claimed in the previous film that this was a common fallacy. But I just love the escalating panic of Paul and the priest as they realize that it's not working. The Count is on his feet, they've just kicked one hell of a hornet's nest, and they need to get out of there fast. Which Paul definitely does, I'm not sure if they've undercranked the camera, but he shoots off up those stairs like a scolded cat. And I really like this scene because having Dracula killed by a schoolboy with a fro and some kindling would have been the equivalent of going out like a punk. And it was just never going to happen. And by the way, I love how Francis's direction suggests that the Count explodes out of his coffin. As apparently Lee had stipulated that he never ever wanted to be shown trying to clamber out of one. And I think this is a really good idea because I suspect it's probably the vampire equivalent of you or I trying to get out of a beanbag without using our hands. <laughs> and that might have taken something away from the scene, I think. Oh, I agree. There's, I don't think there's any good way to get out of a coffin, cinematic-wise, unless you do like a Nosferatu, where you come up with camera, with movie trickery, you know, with the board or whatever. So he levitates basically out of the coffin. Which they did in Hammer's very final Dracula film, didn't they? Even, even though it wasn't Christopher Lee. I'll take your word for it. <laughs> Best thing about John Forbes Robertson's Dracula in that he does do the Nosferatu upright out of the coffin thing. That's for me in the future. Oh, yes. It's your past. I wanted to tie in with something you said. When you were talking about the stake and how it didn't work, the priest, the father, kept telling Paul, 
You have to pray. You have to pray. And I like how it was established earlier, Paul's an atheist. Exactly. So he can't pray. And he's telling the father, you have to pray. Yeah, you pray. You pray. Yeah. Well, the priest for most of the whole movie was just a wuss. Yes, he was. He always had that sad sack look. That mm-hmm. did. I like the way he was acted where his shoulders were hanging low. Yeah. You know, you and Hooper, like the weight of the world was beating him down. Yes. And you could just tell his faith was broken early in the movie. He's now under control of Dracula. Mm-hmm. He's doing things that he doesn't want to do. Yeah. Um, he's the only character with a character arc. Yeah. So to speak. Um, for the thing, because the rest pretty much stay on track. He's the only one that has a little bit of variation. Apart from Paul, perhaps, who does appear to find some faith or at least go through the motions, literally, in that final, final scene where he crosses himself. But you describing the priest sort of hang dog look, I'm sure that's how you and Hooper felt as well when he went to the movie and discovered that they had dubbed him. I mean, it's a really, really great performance, and I would love to have seen it with his actual voice. Yeah, it sadly happened, and, and, and he ties in with what my favorite scene is, and that's between him and the Monsignor, mm. Rupert Davies. When the Monsignor shows up and sees that there's nobody at church except for the altar boy, the altar boy leads him to where the priest is, who's at the local tavern, uh, wetting his whistle, so to speak, and the Monsignor could see that things have gone down, and has that mano a mano conversation with him and then takes him to Dracula's castle to perform an exorcism on it. But the way Rupert Davies is just carrying the cross on his back. Iconic, isn't it? A whole day's journey, because they start at like six Mm -hmm. in the morning and they go all the way into the evening and he just keeps going on. You can just see this younger Mm -hmm. priest struggling to follow Rupert Davis' character who's driven by faith and much older just continues on. I thought was telling is when he goes back home, the Monsignor does, it makes it sound like he's done stuff like this before and that he had trained other priests. So it really makes you wonder what his backstory was. What had he done before? Had he had he fought demons and devils before? It really makes you wonder. In a different film, in a different script, I could almost see him being the aged Father Shandor at the very end of his career and his life, who, as you say, has seen all these things and fought all these demons. Of course, with the timeline that doesn't quite fit because this film is only set, I think, a year year after the previous film but and i was thinking because like father shandor i was thinking okay we establish him early and he's going to come back and he's going to be the big thing mm. at the end and so it kind of it kind of threw me off when it wasn't him my feeling steve is that this film breaks the mold in a lot of ways and that's why i like it and one of the things that it changes is that an older wise person is no longer the main hero it's now very much motivated by youth culture. We've now got younger protagonists. And although I really didn't like the character of Paul, that's who you're supposed to be following now. And I guess audiences were getting younger and they were probably more likely to invest in that particular character. So we've moved away from the Van Helsing, from the Shandor characters, and we're now expected for the next few films to follow a young man called Paul. And that is true. Now, are you ready to talk about the poster? Let's talk about that poster. So I'm looking at the poster, and of course, I mean, you know who the artist is, Mm -hmm. I'm sure, because that's just 
the way you always roll. Yeah, yes. <laughs> the uh, way that I bang on about Tom Chantrell, yes. Obviously, you see Dracula, who looks very perturbed. <laughs> Fists are there. It's like it's it's almost like the way the artist did it. It's like he's in a coffin and he's trying to bang through mm. the lid, you know, type of thing. Like there's a barrier there and he's trying to burst through it, which would make sense if Dracula has risen from the... And then you have images from the movie on the bottom part of this poster. You can see where teenage boys and young men would be drawn to one half mm -hmm. of the poster bottom part as much more than the other part just because of the way the artist rendered certain females in the movie. It's not as good as some other posters that I've seen Hammer do that we've talked about, but it does convey the movie to me. And I'm curious ask you because like the, the gold or yellow with the dracula has risen from the grave being the background and underneath it you got the blue ethereal mist around dracula's head sticks out to me but not in a good way so i'm not sure what the artist is trying to convey but maybe you can help figure that out for me it's definitely an unusual choice and i think it's maybe just a case of the artist going in a direction which isn't the expected one i mean those colors that you've just described to me anyway suggest sunshine and blue skies almost the exact opposite of what you would expect to see on a hammer film poster and i suspect that he's just maybe trying something different keeping himself interested experimenting in this case i think many people that i've read about anyway don't believe that it quite works i I don't mind it too much. I always applaud people who want to try something different. Yeah. I think I'm more in that camp. I mean, I, I can see what, you know, I'm fine with people trying something different, in it, but it's not a memorable yeah. poster. It's, uh, obviously, it works better for you. Well, you know, I've, I always say at any opportunity that I love Tom Chantrell. I love his work. But it's really hard to get past the fact that this poster is, as, as most people know, a self-portrait of him apparently shouting, Doh! Homer Simpson style, with his arms raised. It just doesn't really do it for me. But the smaller images, as you've mentioned, along the bottom are really wonderful. And it sort of makes us imagine what a Tom Chantrell graphic novel of this movie might actually have looked like. You can see that the evolution of his style, these smaller paintings along the bottom, they actually replace the photographic images that he used for the poster for the previous Dracula film. It indicates his evolution but as with everything he does it, it just also shows off his accurately detailed and finally finely composed illustrative style now i'm blindsiding you a little bit steve because i don't want to talk about this poster so much as the famous u.s advertising campaign which used photographic images now i don't know if you've got any of those images in front of you they're actually very easy to find online this was an advertising campaign done by bill gold advertising and commissioned by warner brothers gold was actually a graphic designer and artist who began working on film posters in-house for warner brothers before he went out on his own in 1962 and you may not have heard the name but it's almost difficult to find a film poster that hasn't been designed by bill gold in the 60s 70s and even 80s for example the same year that he did the campaign for dracula has risen from the grave he also created the posters for barbarella bullet 
and Funny Girl. He went on to do the posters for every single Clint Eastwood film, and he also did the very, very famous image for The Exorcist, The Sting, and my personal favourite James Bond poster, For Your Eyes Only. So for Dracula Has Risen From The Grave, Bill Gold handled the entire print campaign. You'll probably have seen various different sized ads and everything else. He used publicity shots and stills from the film in a very graphic and typographical composition, occasionally offset with added colloquialisms like boy does he give a hickey now the famous poster is a black and white photograph of a young woman shown from her lower face down to her upper chest with two large band-aids on her neck and the word obviously is bracketed after the film title. This is a genuine classic. I love this poster. It really combines sexiness and wit, which was exactly the right direction to go. As the first Hammer film and a new distribution deal with Warner Brothers, it seems to me that the US studio really pulled out all the stops in the promotion for this film because this advertising material is everywhere and highly Regarded by some pretty famous graphic designers working in the industry these days. Whatever you personally think about the humour, Risen did enormous business in the US. And I think this striking campaign definitely helped ensure that Hammer would be continuing its Dracula cycle for many years to come. What do you think about that campaign, Steve? I will say right off the bat, as you brought up, this poster is memorable. When you see it, you're never going to forget it. As you said, the proof is in the pudding. It made mm. lots of money. So it did the job. The typography on that poster is just absolutely gorgeous. It's way more sophisticated than anything you'd ever seen on the British posters. It's just a really, really nice piece of work. And I, I love the adding of the word obviously. Because when I, when, I when I was first looking at the poster, I was like, Oh, I like that. That's cute. That's clever, you know. Obviously. Obviously, because otherwise there would be there would not be a movie. <laughs> <laughs> Just a favorite tangent of mine to go off on, the fact that graphic design can be as important to these posters as illustration. Okay, I'm going to go on to connections, which is very easy to do for these initial Dracula films from Hammer. So Risen from the Grave appears to seamlessly dovetail with the previous film where we saw the Count sink beneath the ice of his castle moat. It's too easy to nitpick, but I'm still keen to try and consolidate a couple of points. Now, the shocking but logic-defying church bell prologue could only have somehow happened during the events of Dracula, Prince of Darkness. So let's assume that Dracula stopped for a snack on his way to Shandor's monastery, and Clove thought it would be a great prank to creatively dispose of the body in the church. And we won't even talk about how you manage to keep someone hanging out of a church bell. Dracula himself is discovered beneath the frozen water of a mountain stream. Again, that's fine. Let's assume that the moat of Castle Dracula is clearly fed by running water, which carried him downstream. Although vampire law pedants may object to this whole running water thing. Castle Dracula itself has undergone the first of its two refurbishments, and is now more of an imposing mountaintop fortress than the more welcoming chateau of the previous films. So clearly the Count had arranged these renovations before becoming fridged for a year. 
But in reality, I think Freddie Francis obviously just wanted to be able to show Castle Dracula in long shot. Once again, he's approaching this from the point of view of a cinematographer. And I think the matte paintings just look wonderful. Lastly, the coffin of poor Gisela Hines, the bell girl, shows that she died in 1905, giving us a reasonably credible timeline for the Hammer Dracula films so far. And very disturbingly, when the priest tips her mouldering corpse out, and, and I actually found this genuinely distressing. She appears to have a chest wound which might be consistent with staking. I don't know if you noticed that or not, Steve. I noticed it, and which goes back to the prior movie where Father Shindor comes up where people were going to stake the girl anyway, you know, because the corpse. So I think it was just a standard MO. Oh, if you're if you're bitten by the vampire, we're going to stake you and just to, just to play it safe, which makes sense. So yes, it wasn't shown, but it does tie in with the mm-hmm. connection it does movie. it does but <laughs> i i just find that whole thing disturbing not only was this poor girl murdered by dracula not only was she shoved into a church bell and basically basically traumatizing the altar boy and making sure that no one ever went back to church but even after she's laid to rest presumably after being staked she's dug up again and thrown out of her own coffin i just think I think she has one of the most tragic stories in all of Hammer history. And then I guess you can say unwritten, she was run over by the carriage as they drove off. (laughs) (laughs) That is a cut scene that would be worth tracking down. (laughs) I'm just just saying. (laughs) Oh, Steve, you're just so sentimental. (laughs) After that golden contribution, do you have any merchandise you want to talk about? Um, I don't have any real merchandise, but I do have something I want to put out there in the ether. I really think this is something I definitely would buy mm-hmm. if it was made. And that is a Hammer cookbook. Because Michael Ripper is known to be many times the tavern owner. In this case, he's the tavern owner and he's a master mm-hmm. baker. So could you imagine a book called Ripper's Recipes? <laughs> you know, or something along those lines. That's what I've been missing all my life. One third of it would be um, like desserts, bakery type stuff appetizers the other third main entrees and the last one because he's a tavern owner various drinks <laughs> i like it steve i like it i imagine that garlic would be a prime ingredient for um for quite a few of those recipes as well how about you al what did you come up with of what did i come up with um way back in 1979 warren publishing who of course did famous monsters of filmland released warren presents dracula 79 now this was basically a famous monsters of filmland special which breathlessly previewed the eagerly awaited 1979 dracula starring frank langella but it padded out its pages with possibly reprinted features on the lugosi and palance versions as well as a lovely tribute to dwight fry and an excellent comic strip but what really excited me as a kid was this richly illustrated synopsis of Dracula Has Risen from the Grave, which featured a publicity shot which I don't think I've seen since. And it's of the Count actually standing beside the bell that poor Giselda, who you've just so sensitively talked about, hanging out of the bottom, which is maybe implying that he's actually stuffed her in there himself. I'm I'm not really sure. But anyway, because Dracula Has Risen from the Grave was probably the very last Hammer Dracula film that I ever got to see, and 
you know, that was many decades later. Until that point, this was really my only source for finding out what happens in, in that particular film. So that little magazine, which I still own, had a very special place in my heart. I have to, I have to look that up because I, there's, a, there's a guy I know who has copies at a reasonable price, and I'll probably be seeing him at a future Monster Oh, excellent. Bash, so I'll have to. Excellent. Yeah, it's got a brilliant Basil Gogos portrait of Christopher Lee on the front cover, who, as far as Hammer artists are concerned, he's an absolute god. I always love his painted portraits. Now, Steve, I'm hoping that you can tell us about the time that you met one of the stars of this movie, if not the star of this movie. I've, I've been fortunate enough over the years to have met Veronica Carlson multiple times at different conventions and had wonderful conversations with her. And I can just tell you, she's such a lovely, warm, caring person. And I was extremely fortunate at her last Monster Bash convention back in uh, October 2021 to interview her at that. And we got to talk and it was just a wonderful, wonderful time with her. If people have want to, they can go listen to the full episode, which is to go to Diecast Movie Podcast. You look for Veronica Carlson, it'll pop right up. Well, I'll play excerpts from it as we do different episodes that involve Veronica in it. But this one, I think, talks about Christopher Lee. And it gives give people a little bit of an idea of what kind of person uh, Christopher Lee's like in her, in her memories. Well, Christopher would wear those awful contacts. He never complained, ever. And they, they were a difficult thing to, to cope with. And that cape, and I asked him one day how beautiful it was. I said, how, it must be very heavy. And he slipped it off his shoulders and put it around my, sh oh, my neck. My legs nearly buckled. And I, <laughs> it was incredible. It must have weighed about 30 pounds. That, robe was so heavy but when i was carried up the mountain by eddie powell his stand-in mm -hmm. eddie eddie wore a very much lighter robe i mean negligible in weight of course thank god but of course my head was hanging over the precipice as we walked <laughs> up the mountain and i was saying to eddie please don't drop me please don't <laughs> drop me i never thought anyone would be ever strong enough to hold me to hold my weight and eddie was saying don't worry don't worry we're fine um we obviously made it because I'm still here, so we, we did a good job. Ah, oh, that's wonderful. Speaking of Veronica Carlson, one thing in this film which really struck me as incredibly subversive is that scene in the carriage where she's nuzzling Dracula's coffin. You know the scene that I'm talking about? That's actually pretty shocking stuff, but... Beautifully performed, as ever, by Veronica Carlson. Well, it shows the power, just like with Barbara Ewing yeah. playing Xena, the power that he has over his victims with the one bite and, and how they, and I think both actresses played it up very well, how they wanted to be his number one, so to speak. But I just, like, he's in the coffin. So she's like, oh, I just want to be in there with him. And, and, and I, I thought it was I thought it was very well done too. It's just, it's a, it's a quick few second scene, but it adds a lot. I think Barbara Ewing is somewhat overshadowed by Veronica Carlson, but I think she also does a, a brilliant job of portraying this character who's completely in the thrall of the Count and and clearly wants to be. Gives her life meaning finally. 
Barbara Ewing these days is actually a very, very famous author. In fact, I've read one of her books myself. That is how she is known in New Zealand now as a writer. And interestingly, she has very long uh, blonde hair, not dissimilarly from Veronica Carlson. So for obvious reasons in Dracula Has Risen from the Grave, they tied it all up under the red wig that Cena wears. I will say it's kind of interesting that you brought up about how Barbara Ewing was overshadowed by Veronica Carlson in the movie. And that was Zeno's plight the whole movie. Where mm. It's always Maria. It's yes. always Maria. And even when Dracula's, oh, go get Maria. It's like, you have me, you know? <laughs> it's like nobody wants her first. And I felt terrible for her. You know, she's always, even the villain doesn't want her first. I do. Actually, I'm, I'm pleased that you mentioned that scene because as a New Zealander, it really gave my heart a warm glow. In certain scenes where Xena becomes agitated, Barbara Ewing's accent comes through. And that particular scene where she says, Maria, what do you want her for? So, oh, this is just like being home. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not implying there's anything at all wrong with Barbara Ewing's acting. In fact, I think she graduated head of her class at the Royal Academy of Dramatic Arts, which is no small thing, certainly. Sorry, Barbara, if you ever hear this, I don't mean any offence. Barbara Ewing apparently lives in London, although she does return to New Zealand from time to time for book signings and things like that. But unfortunately, I've never had the chance to meet her. But I do have this excerpt from an interview that she did with our national radio where she mentions her favourite Hammer story. I was in a Hammer horror movie called Dracula Has Risen I've From seen the it. Grave. Oh, you've seen with it. Christo well, with Christopher Lee. That's right. And this is what happened. I'd worked with the director and he wanted to use me and the producer, very unusually, was a woman and they wanted me for this part. And they showed my photo to the guys who ran it at the top I think they were oh, father and son. And they said, oh, God, no, she's not sexy enough. No, no, no. So the producer, the woman, took me away and she and the director had a talk. She bought this huge bra, showed me how to fill it up with a whole lot of things before yourself starts showing. And this is serious. Got corsets and showy dresses and a red flaming wig. Showed it to the bosses and they said, her, we'll have her. Good. And I have no idea if they knew it was the same person or not. That is a true story of Hammer Horror. Well, shall we go on to final thoughts, or did you have anything else that you wanted to add? No, I think, I think we're ready. Okay. Overall, I enjoyed this movie, and I, and I liked it a lot. There were parts that I said, obviously, with the strengths, Rupert Davies, Veronica Carlson, Barbara Ewing, um, Big weakness to me in this movie is Paul. Mm -hmm. I'm not I'm not blaming the actor at all because you know it he's playing the part as it's written. So I don't want to say you know I'm not trying to say Barry Andrews did something poor and proper. It's just I don't really care much about Paul. I don't mm -hmm. know what it is about him. Maybe it's yes he always likes to say the truth and he always wants to do this and that. But I'm just thinking this is the kind of person who's like when you're pounding around. It's the guy that can get annoying sometimes <laughs> in your social group. And you're just like, oh, I can only, oh, Paul's going to be there. Oh, do I really want to go? I mean, you know, it, it's just, and he's the main protagonist in the sense for the film. Hmm. So it really, to me, hurts the film. 
and I think it needed somebody with a more gravitas, like um, Obi-Wan passing the torch to Luke Skywalker, Rupert mm-hmm. Davies passing it to Barry Andrews, just didn't work as well yeah. as, as you'd hope it would. Overall, I, I enjoyed the movie a lot. It's to me, out of the Dracula movies we've done so far, it is number three. It's, it's definitely not beating the first two mm-hmm. that we've talked about. Dracula is just a smidge ahead of the other movie we saw. So this mm. one, this one is, there's a big of a bit of a gap. So it'd be interesting okay. to see as we continue forward, where the other Dracula movies with Christopher Lee fall into their slots. That's interesting. And it ties in very closely with my thoughts as well. I don't believe it's Barry Andrews fault. I just think Paul is a very bland character who, as you say, is, is not that easy to like. And to me, at least, in Hammer's Dracula cycle, Dracula is undisputedly the hero of these films. So I'm never going to side with someone who, on screen at least, just doesn't even have a fraction of the charisma that Christopher Lee or Peter Cushing or Andrew Keir or Rupert Davies brings to their roles. Interestingly, I would rank this film personally above Dracula Prince of Darkness for the reasons that I've mentioned, and that is mainly the visual look of the film. Perhaps it's just the way that my particular brain is wired, but that always makes me want to watch this film again and again. I find it so rewarding from a visual point of view. And to me as well, this is the film which cemented the Hammer Dracula cycle as an ongoing adventure series rather than just an adaptation or an initial sequel, which is how I would categorize the first two films. This is the one to me that really got the series on the rails and charging forward because, as we've mentioned, it was incredibly successful. To me as well, this is sucks in the city. It opens up the setting and it moves the Count out of his own hood to spread terror in a relatively large metropolis. So it's actually moving the Count out of the setting that he's always been in previously. And on seeing Dracula has risen from the grave, what really strikes me is that the previous two films had decidedly middle-aged heroes, which is absolutely fine. In fact, it's even preferable, as we've just been saying. But here we've got the first infiltration of youth culture, where we see younger leads to appeal to a younger audience. Kynenberg is a student town, and much like campus neighbouring establishments today, its tavern is filled with noise, beer fumes, and bizarre drinking rituals. But of course, we also have Michael Ripper, thank goodness, at his absolute charming best, and he's right at home amongst all these younger people. He's having a great time, and that's that's really really nice to see. So I guess what I'm saying is that Hammer has literally injected new blood into the series and Dracula is now the hero leaving home to feast on young starlets most of them with boyfriends called Paul. So I'm really looking forward to looking at the films that come after this one even though as we know the continuity takes a pretty infamous crash not too far from here. 
Yes, it does. Going back to your analogy with the cinematography and how to think, I think it goes with the differences between you and I, which I think listeners are starting to pick up on Mm -hmm. about certain things that appeal to each of us. And I'll use the example like with a comic book, where if a comic book, a lot of times I was driven by the writing Mm -hmm. and the the artwork when it mirrored with it to to forward the storytelling, where you might have been blown away by a full page drawn artwork and all this other stuff. And the storytelling might not have to have been as strong, but the artwork could just maybe buoyed it even farther for you Mm -hmm. it could be just a different preferences where we both like a lot of the same stuff but we both gravitate more to yours to visual and mine more maybe to um as i've said there's absolutely nothing wrong with dracula prince of darkness it's 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 one of my favorites but as i also said in that episode this film feels like a total refresh in ways that really appeal to me i don't believe we could just keep having stories set in dracula's castle and visitors coming things happening to them it needed to be opened up it needed to be freshened up and i really believe that this film does that beautifully Oh, I'll agree with you, except it's just person they're passing the torch to is kind of, eh. <laughs> well, I can't, I can't disagree with that. <laughs> if it would, if, if it would pass the torch to somebody that we were all like, yeah, mm. then it would be, I think, I think we'd both be running on all cylinders. There's one thing we got to do. Yes. We have to roll the die for the next movie. We do. So listeners that are new to this, um, Hammerama, if we roll one, it's Dracula, two, it's Frankenstein, three is the mummy, four is science fiction. Five is prehistory. Six, the experimental 70s. All right, I'm going to roll. And we have a five. Oh. Prehistory. Excellent. Where are we going, Al? You tell me. Where are we headed? All right, Steve. We are going back to a time when dinosaurs ruled the earth. This is a wonderful film for many reasons, and it's also remarkable because it is the only instance where a Hammer film was up for an Academy Award for special effects. And the special effects are very special indeed. I wonder what you mean by that. (laughs) (laughs) I'm saying no more than that. And I have met Victoria Vetri before. Have you really? Oh, how wonderful. Well, I'll look forward to hearing more about that, Steve. Well, thank you. And listeners, thank you for listening. And again, we really appreciate when people send us feedback. You can send us feedback at diecastmoviepodcast at gmail.com. You can send it to us as an email. You can send it to us as an MP3 recording. Also, if you just want to leave us messages on our Facebook post, Al and I both respond to them. We both we read all of them. Absolutely. And I especially love it when people disagree with us. We all have strong opinions about these films, but it's always stimulating to be able to talk to other people about them. So please tune in next month when Steve and I talk about when dinosaurs ruled the earth. Obviously. Hammerama is a proud part of the Diecast Movie Podcast.